The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's really nice to be with everyone, and um, I get to do, we get to do one of my favorite things at least, which is reflect on, it's really our human lineage of wisdom from our people who lived before us, and they wondered, as we do when we're not overwhelmed by difficulties and not being oppressed and are privileged enough to be able to be reflective, then what often comes to mind for us humans is, what do we do with this human life? And, you know, looking around, looking at our own experience as a human being and looking around at others, people answer or respond to that question in a lot of different ways, like what to do with this life. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get as much as I can get, and uh, I'm going to keep other people from taking it away. That's one strategy. You know, another is like, uh, I'm not going to be happy until everybody's happy. That's another strategy. There's so many different strategies. And, you know, the Dharma, these teachings from the Buddha and from all of our spiritual ancestors, it's really about bringing a lot of integrity to that question, what do we do with this human life? And so you might have seen the title for tonight's talk, and I'll probably talk for about 30 minutes or so, and we'll have at least 10 minutes for discussion. Hopefully you'll have some reflections of your own or questions. But the topic was this integrating the wisdom of non-attachment with the wholesome movement of compassionate action. And it, it kind of, it's just one closer way of looking at that question, what do we do with this human life? Because we understand pretty, I mean, we have a lot of evidence from our own experience how painful it is when we're attached and life is unfolding in a different direction than the way our attachment would like it to unfold, right? We know that feeling. Someone doesn't love us and we want them to love us. The election goes a direction we didn't want it to go or goes, uh, or some, you know, just any number of things. So we understand that attachment hurts and that when my heart is free of attachment, there's the absence of that burden of being attached. But how to, because a lot of times when we begin to understand the pain of attachment, this is sort of a spiritual bypass. We see it a lot, not just in Buddhist circles, so we, we get, like the, the classic example will be just in the realm of intimate relationships. And we've been burnt a number of times, fallen in love, person doesn't love us or stops loving us, right? And then we, this is sort of dealing with the question, what to do with this human life from a cognitive place. So then I'm going to intellectually think, okay, I'm just not going to fall in love again, you know? And it's an idea, you know, I'm my happiness is dependent on not falling in love and then I'll be happy. Well, as you might imagine, it doesn't really work very well. 
So we have to, we, we eventually grow up as a human being and we realize that as much as we might have some intuition that what we should do with this human life is realize a way of being non-attached, then as we mature, as we grow up, we realize that that non-attachment has to be in the context of intimacy. Or, if you don't like that word, non-attachment in the context of engagement. Non-attachment in the context of showing up, leaning in, doing what needs to be done. We know... Uh, we know there's uh, intimacy with attachment, engagement with attachment, and we know there's non-attachment without intimacy, like that strategy I mentioned, you know, I'm going to get my nice little house and my nice little life, and I'm going to build a big wall around it so nobody can take anything away or mess it up. But it just turns out we spend a whole life worrying if our defenses are adequate and it always <laughs> nature always wins you know we can't we can't get in control hope that's not breaking news to anybody <laughs> you know whether it's our parent or our pet or our politics or even our own mind anybody got their mind in control no so this is the great dynamic, intimacy and non-attachment. And now I'm not suggesting we don't use that leaving behind the messiness and the ungovernableness of engagement. It's very strategic, like it's really useful, like even tonight to have 30 minutes where we, for some, to some degree, we put down our duties and responsibilities right? Presumably your cell phones were off. The people you live with knew to leave you alone. Maybe you had your pet in the other room and you weren't reading the news and you weren't dealing with the oppression and the injustices in the world. You doesn't mean you didn't care. It just means that for that 30 minutes and for many times during our day, we choose to turn away from what is needing action, what is needing engagement. So that's a particular strategy that we're going to always use, even the Buddha. There's many examples, like one where there was a quarrel among the, the monks and they were arguing about something pretty silly and, and uh, the Buddha told them to drop it and they told the Buddha, which was... <laughs> You know, the Buddha was pretty respected at the time. And they said to the Buddha, Oh, you don't get hot and bothered about our argument. We'll take care of that, our argument. You know, we don't want you to suffer. And the Buddha just, you know, probably rolled his eyes. And after trying a few times to help them put it down, he just left them. He went out into the woods or jungle. And, uh, I mean, it's somewhat mythological, but an elephant... Uh, who was having a hard time with the herd, also was out in the middle of the jungle by himself, and the two took care of each other. Right, the, 
the elephant would pull fruit down from the high trees, you know, that where the Buddha couldn't reach and offer him fruit so he could continue to live. And they had the retreat time until the Buddha was moved to come back. So that that's inspiring that we're going to want that time of retreat of non-attachment that's dependent on seclusion. That's the easy non-attachment. You know, like when everything's the way we want it, it's pretty easy for me to be free of attachment. You know, the body sensations are the way I like it, and the temperature, and the way people are treating me, and the weather, and the food, and the world around me. It's just how I like it. And then it's easy to not need conditions to be different, to have a lot of equanimity, to not need that attachment, that habit of struggling. So one of the reasons, it's not just about having optimal circumstances where everything is the way we like it. Even in our meditative experience, we withdraw. Like we still see when we're meditating, our eyes still work, our ears still work, our skin still feels sensations. But in, in some meditative practices, we don't pay attention to what the eyes are seeing and what the ears are hearing and what the skin is touching and even what the mind is thinking, right? So like when I'm doing a meditation on loving kindness, for example, or just feeling that sense of inner space, the space of the present moment, I, whatever my eyes are seeing, that's happening in the background. Whatever my ears are hearing, it's all happening, but the attention is not paying attention to those that aspect of my experience. I'm retreating. I'm choosing not to pay attention. And in that secluded place, as Suzanne mentioned, we had a little intro to the practice at uh, 7 o'clock, and there are a few of the people that are here now there for that. And Suzanne shared with us you know, the, how pleasant it was for the mind to retreat from the push and pull of my likes and dislikes. So we learn something about equanimity, about non-attachment, when we have really nice circumstances. Like when the mind has withdrawn from its senses, from its sensitivity, and it's in its inner space, whether that inner space is the space of knowing but not so much about what's being known, or maybe it's an inner space of loving kindness or compassion, or maybe it's just that beautiful balance of equanimity. There are many contemplations that we can use to help the mind withdraw from sense experience. And what happens in those moments is there's a very natural equanimity, a beautiful balance a non-agitation, but that non-agitation is because the mind isn't paying attention to things that agitate it, right? So that equanimity, that peacefulness is dependent on those supporting conditions. Like I have a suitable place to let go of the world. You know, it's, it wouldn't be easy for us to let go of the world in the middle of Charlotte, you know, on a busy side of a busy street, with things going on around us, or even in a cluttered place in our 
in our apartment or our home, you know, where the bills are and our unfinished things are, it may not be so easy. But if we have a relatively quiet place, I'm right now out at Common Ground has a, a retreat property a little bit outside of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And so I'm here for about five weeks and it's very peaceful, not much going on out here. A few dairy farms, lots of hills and trees, a few open fields, birds, deer, and not much else. And it's relatively easy being out of the city energy and just the, you know, humanity and our collective neurosis and neuroses in a city, right? It's relatively easy with fewer humans around me for things to quiet down and to feel that peace. But there's some stress, like even in a very peaceful set that has arisen because my mind's really taken a vacation from what it's sensitive to. I'm sensitive to my thoughts, but I'm not paying attention to them. I'm not pushing them away. But I'm just letting the thoughts be there in the background. I'm sensitive to seeing and hearing and touching, but I'm not paying attention to those sensitivities. They're just there in the background. And in the foreground is this, you know, for lack of a better way of talking about it, the empty space of the knowing mind, the loving space of the knowing mind, the balanced, peaceful space of the knowing mind. And I'm abiding in that space. And in that abiding, I'm noticing, oh, this is the mind that's not agitated. This is the mind that's not push, being pushed and pulled by experience. Oh, this is equanimity. This is peace, peacefulness. So we get it. We get a taste of what's possible because we have supporting conditions. We have the privilege because not every human being has the privilege people who are really struggling for their survival in poverty or being oppressed or having difficult circumstances dealing with a terrible illness or something like that, they don't necessarily have the option to retreat if they're overwhelmed by physical pain or emotional pain or being oppressed in some way, treated badly, unfairly. So it's a privilege, but with that privilege, we get a sense of the peace that's available. And then the natural question is there in the mind. Can this peace be sustained when I lose the concentration? When I lose that seclusion and I'm talking to my partner or dealing with my cat scratching the furniture or worse, you know, looking at the world and, and all the suffering and injustice in the world and feeling part of that, feeling complicit in that and uh, motivated to do something or to raise kids or to address climate change, right? And then that's the very interesting spiritual question. Because, you know, even at the time of the Buddha, the people, the spiritual seekers at the time of the Buddha, they knew a lot about seclusion, Concentrating the mind, withdrawing the attention from the su superficial aspect of seeing and hearing and thinking by not paying attention 
to that surface level. Let's just call that the activity of the body through the five senses, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and hearing, and the activity of the mind, that grosser level of the mind, the thinking mind, planning mind, comparing mind, worrying mind. That's the nature of the body and the mind. That nature is always in motion. And through meditative training, we choose not to pay attention to it. Like I mentioned, that's called seclusion. We're secluding the mind from that activity. And we learn a thing or two about the peace, the balance, the equanimity that's possible. And then the sit ends <laughs> or the knee starts to hurt and we can't sit anymore or we have to pee or we, you know, get sleepy or something. But the sit ends one to one, one way or another, even if you're a meditative master and you can sit for 24 hours, it's still going to end. And there you have a life again, an ordinary life of relationship, of a body that needs maintenance relationships that need maintenance, a world that needs our participation, right? And then how does equanimity, how does peacefulness, how can that beautiful balance be sustained even in the midst of likes and dislikes, seductive experience, agitating experience? Where does that come, that peace come from? How does that arise? So I, I like thinking about spiritual path in terms of that integration of the wisdom of non-attachment. Like we, in moments, and it may be in a meditative state, but it may be you're just in your sacred spot, wherever that might be, and you're feeling loved and you're feeling safe and you feel naturally a lot of equanimity a lot of peacefulness, but it's dependent on those supporting causes, right? So whether it's from a meditative experience or just having a lot of positive supports around you, we learn something about the wisdom of non-attachment. Oh, my heart doesn't need things to be different than they are. I'm not attached right now. Because if you do get attached, like if you're in a nice sit and you're really calm, as soon as we get attached, like as soon as I have the thought, I don't want to lose this calm, what happens? We lose the calm, right? Because the calm is different than I like this calm, I don't want to lose it. That's a state of greed. I like this calm, I don't want to lose it. And that state of mind is stressful. Abiding in calm isn't stressful. Wanting the calm to continue is stressful. So a lot of people, human beings, you know, especially those interested in spiritual life, they do start to taste moments of non-attachment and they definitely, we definitely want it to continue, but we start to imitate it. It's like, okay, that equanimity, that peacefulness was good, so I'm just going to pretend now that I'm back in the world, that I have a lot of equanimity and I have a lot of peace. But it's an idea in my mind. It's like, I'm somebody who's peaceful. I'm somebody who's balanced. I'm somebody who doesn't get rattled. So it's like a, we're an actor playing a role of a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, I'm somebody who's cool and doesn't get thrown off. 
But underneath it is there's a lot of tension because it's like we're identified with that stance and we don't want to fail. So any little crack, you know, we got to immediately patch it up, cover it up. No, no, I'm not stressful. I'm happy. I'm Buddhist. <laughs> you know, I meditate. So in, maybe in the Insight Meditation community at Charlotte, you notice this inevitable dharma stink you could call it right because it's it's really endemic in buddhist circles we all do it to some degree uh because we know that that non-attachment that balance and peacefulness is good we just haven't figured out how it gets sustained when we're out in the world in one way or another we're all going to try imitating being peaceful or imitating being wise or imitating having equanimity or being balanced until like if we're lucky a good friend's gonna tell us something they're gonna pull us aside and say why are you acting so weird <laughs> you know what happened to being real you know in your skin you know human what happened to being human because this is this is you really this is where you meet some uh People have been practicing for a while and you're really inspired because they seem to have a lot of balance, a lot of that peacefulness, but on the same in the same way they're they're very real. Like they have emotions that go up and down. Right? But they they seem to have a lot of space. So even if they act out, they seem to have a lot of space around them acting out. It doesn't get sticky or stuck. So they act out and then they go, Oh, God, I, I just lost it. Sorry about that. You know, I got identified with this thought. But I'm okay. I'm okay hurting. I'm okay being agitated. I'm okay feeling the pain of loss. I'm okay feeling this anger. I'm not confused by the anger I feel. I'm not confused by the lust. This is like an interesting thing, you know, because somehow, you know, we human beings ended up being sexual. Have you noticed? Even now in my 60s, I'm, I'm still sexual. I, you know, I have sexual urges. And it's, and it's, uh, there's so much suffering and like somehow, whether it's conscious or not, thinking that we shouldn't. Oh, I'm, I've been married for almost 30 years. I, I shouldn't be attracted to another person. You know, that's not okay. Well, you know, first of all, <laughs> why not? So the question isn't like not to be attracted to other people, but not to be confused by attraction. Oh, of course there's attraction. It feels like this. It moves like this. Yeah, if I act on it, then all hell breaks looks like this. If I just feel it without being confused by it, then it's not a problem. It's just these urges being felt. It's, it's what we might call life energy, moving through the body and mind, which is what it's supposed to do, right? And it's not just, you know, about being a sexual being, but, you know, we're in this world where there's always power dynamics, always, whether it's in our most loving relationships or certainly out in the world and in the world of business and then just around 
sexual orientation and gender and race and so many convoluted power dynamics mostly were unconscious. And, and because we're unconscious, we're pushed around, even if we don't think we are, acting them out in one way or another. So part of this, like being able to be balanced, even while being real and intimate, means we have to be able to see the movement of sexual urges, see the power dynamics that are playing out in our world, we have to see everything, feel everything, and not be confused by it. And so, you know, the, the basic learning dynamic is when we're overwhelmed by everything that's moving, it's not easy for us to learn anything because we're so busy with the, the strength of habit energy reacting to this and reacting to that we're just lost, identified with the urges, identified with the habit energies. So the basic spiritual path is when we can, however we can, we withdraw for an hour, <laughs> for 10 minutes, for a week. You know, I think now I'm so fortunate I think I've probably been, been able to withdraw in a formal retreat setting for about three years totally, you know, cumulatively in my adult life. So three years out of, you know, I'm 62, so from 22 to 62, 40 years, three years out of that altogether, I've been on formal retreat practice. So it's a, I really take an advantage, just like we do when we have a morning sit for 30 minutes where we withdraw from being a person with responsibility and we touch into as much peace as we're able to touch into that set. Because even in that set, the mind is going to be bombarded by habit energies and irritating sounds of our partner doing something in the other room or whatever it might be. And we just have to work with it. But it will be relatively simple and we'll learn in that relatively simple environment Whatever insults come our way, like knee pain or disturbing sounds in that relatively simple environment, it's going to be relatively easy for us to explore our edge. Oh, this thought is coming up. This sound is being heard. This knee pain is being felt. Is it possible for my heart to remain undefended? intimate with these disturbances, these distractions. I'm not asking, right? We, we created a time to sit where there would be few distractions, but there's still going to be some. So those some that remain are very important because that's the edge. We don't expect our formal sitting time to be perfect, perfectly relaxed, perfectly quiet, the mind perfectly empty of thought. No, it's going to be relatively quiet. You know, the body should be relatively comfortable until it's not. The room will be relatively comfortable, but not perfectly. And so then whatever the edge is, whatever interrupts abiding in peace, 
then that's her teacher showing up. Almost like you want to bow down, get your head on the floor. Oh, teacher, you've showed up. Right? Because the basic thought will be, I can't practice until I make this go away. As soon as I make the knee pain go away, then I can go back to my practice of abiding in peace. So what we want to think instead is, oh, my teacher, is there a way for the heart to be peaceful, to be balanced, to be loving, even with knee pain, even with the obsession, like some people hear songs playing through their mind, right? Or some painful memory, or whatever the interruption, the distraction might be. Okay, so now then we're practicing intimacy. And I think it's okay to use the word love, because intimacy, love, compassion, it has this inclusive nature. It's saying, yes, you also belong. I don't, my well-being, my freedom, my peace doesn't depend on you not being here. Because when we're doing this practice that I'm talking about now, we're interested in an unconditioned happiness, peace, freedom, balance. A peace that's not dependent on things being perfect. Because if you haven't noticed, there isn't anything perfect. Our conditioned mind isn't perfect. Certainly, my body isn't perfect. The world is absolutely not perfect, right? The way we treat each other, not perfect. There isn't anything perfect. So we want a peace that's not dependent on perfection. We want a love, this capacity to love unconditionally, not based on things being perfect. Anybody can love a puppy that's behaving itself for a few minutes, right? Our hearts just open. But how about an irritating person? Or how about a person that wants to do us harm? Doesn't mean we should let them harm us. But we can understand that they're a human being. They're probably, if they want to harm me, they're probably suffering. And I'm going to do whatever I can to take care of myself. But I'm not going to waste my energy hating them. It doesn't help me. It probably doesn't help them. We don't need that contraction in our heart to lean in, to show up, to do what the world and what our life needs us to do right now. Do we? I mean, I totally get, because I'm there too, I totally get that a lot of the times when I'm showing up in the messiness of my life, I do get tight. But I think one of the real fruits of practicing for almost 40 years now is I don't, when I, when I am getting tight, I don't pretend to myself that I need to be tight. So I may be tight but I more and more quickly recognize I'm tight and I see it as being extra and unhelpful. That whatever I have to do, whatever the moment needs me to do, could be done better if I wasn't tight. Little, I practice in little ways like 
like I tend to be a controlling type A personality type. So, you know, it's like even putting on my clothes or like, I really like cooking. And like when I'm shopping and uh, chopping vegetables and getting the meal together, it's like, I don't do it with this full embodied, relaxed, balanced, peaceful vibe. I do it as if there's a race and that I'll get points for doing it efficiently and quickly. You know, same thing with dressing and just toiletries. It's been such a a long practice, just like when brushing my teeth. I remember this is a long time ago. The, the dentist said to me, I think you're brushing your teeth too hard. <laughs> you might be wearing down your teeth. <laughs> and then I started to pay attention. It's like, why am I doing it like that? You know, it's just that habit of struggling. So this is the invitation, like, when you have greater and greater confidence because you've tasted peace, you've tasted real balance, you've tasted a kind of generous love that isn't about a particular relationship. It's just that open-heartedness, that generous-heartedness, right? We've tasted the freedom of the heart that is unbound because we've been fortunate to have experiences, supportive experiences that allowed for that open-heartedness. And then the question is, are we willing to work the edges? Like, how can that be sustained in the world? The imperfect, messy world of engagement, of relationship. And then we're really learning something about non-attachment. From the non-attachment that arises because everything's the way we want it to be, to the non-attachment that arises because we've realized the uh, there's nobody that we have to, like, it's a little bit hard to put into words, but this non-attachment is an empowering joy, right? So it's like we're willing to let go of my personal agendas and my personal fears and just do what needs to be done. This is the the real liberating insight to realize that the self-centeredness that we carry around because it's never been looked into, it can really be put down. We don't actually need that concrete idea of me to live our life. And that's why this, what I mentioned earlier, this imitation of being wise, this imitation of being kind, it's such a self-centered trip. It's so unpleasant. Even if we're not aware that it's unpleasant, just under the surface, it's a really contracted state to need, to be this idea of needing to be wise, needing to be seen as kind, is a heavy trip. But real kindness isn't about needing to be kind and real wisdom, skillful action in the world isn't about needing to be skillful. And, you know, there's all kinds of poetic images of leaves falling off a tree in the fall. How graceful and natural and effortless nature does what it does. So our engagement in the world, whether you're a full-time activist trying to 
bring justice into places where there isn't much justice or whatever you might do, raising children, growing a garden, whatever we do, however we lean in, that can be just as graceful and empty of neurotic contracted energy as a leaf falling off of a tree. And we just need to experiment in little ways, like the things I've mentioned, dressing, brushing our teeth, making a meal, and then start with interactions so that you're interacting, going out to eat with someone, for example, can be just the activity of nature. And, and in that way, you're completely real. It's not the idea, I'm nature. It's like you're just letting your personality rip. You're being completely who you are, including neurotic and imperfect, and then aware that you're neurotic and imperfect, right? That's how we learn. So we start by having moments of peace, and then we feel inspired to see what would that freedom, that ease, that release be like when things are more complicated? Let me see. Let me value the release even when things are complicated. I'm not going to get tight. I'm not going to be afraid. But we always learn best on the edges. If we're overwhelmed, we're not really going to learn. When we're overwhelmed, we all know what the thing we need to do then. We need to get someplace where we're less overwhelmed. Because we're really not good for anybody when we're completely overwhelmed. right? And, and the kind of personality patterns that get triggered when we're overwhelmed generally aren't very skillful. So what can we do to soothe? What can we do to find some safety, some more safety? Until we get to those edges where there's enough safety, enough comfort that we can actually be interested in what's provoking reactivity. It's like, well, maybe I can just feel this. Maybe I can just stay in the body. Maybe I can be undefended. Maybe it's okay to feel this much grief. Maybe it's okay to feel this much anger. Maybe it's okay to feel this much lust. Maybe I don't need to be afraid of lust. I just don't want to act it out in a way that causes me or other people harm. So I want to leave it so we have some time for discussion. There's a lot here, of course, but we've got this life and who knows <laughs> what comes next. And it's nice to have that vast view. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.